Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today, Professor David Nutt joins us for a remarkable deep dive into the history, health effects, and long relationship we have with alcohol. This is a fascinating historical, scientific, and psychological insight into alcohol use that you simply won't hear anywhere else. Whether you are an occasional drinker, heavy drinker, or a non-drinker, this episode offers you a one-stop shop education on alcohol that seems to have skipped us all by, and very much by design it turns out, all delivered in an easygoing, compassionate, and pragmatic way by Professor Nutt. This is not a name and shame episode. This is not about vilifying and demonizing alcohol use. It's not an episode that seeks to scare you witless or to encourage a return to prohibition. Far from it. Instead, this is about understanding how to get the social and emotional benefits from alcohol whilst being cognizant of the health risks. Professor David Nutt has definitely earned his stripes to act as an authority on this subject. You'll hear all about him in my intro coming up, so I won't repeat myself here. What I will say though at this stage is that after this episode, you should strongly consider reading or listening to his book called Drink, The New Science of Alcohol and Your Health. It is amazing, it is so, so good. We condense some of the aspects in this discussion, but of course, there is so much more to learn. And his book is the most comprehensive and accessible book on the reality of alcohol drinking on health and longevity that you will ever find. This is a must listen. It's one of those that you should share with care to your friends and family. We all need to up our understanding of alcohol so we can use it wisely for maximum benefit and to manage the risks. As always, you can check out the full show notes of this episode by clicking in the link within the description of this episode itself. And if this discussion resonates with you, please help others find our show by leaving a quick five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging us in a screenshot in Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, check out our Be Your Best Self-Optimization Journey, an online self-improvement program like no other letting you into the human code and helping you realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discount codes in the episode notes. Right, let's get clued up on our favorite social lubricant, alcohol, with the leading authority in drug research, Professor David Nutt. Okay, today, guys, we have the esteemed Professor David Nutt on the show. So he is an English, right, let's try and get this right, neuropsychopharmacologist, currently at the prestigious Imperial College London, specializing in the research of drugs, their effects on the brain, uh, and conditions that relate, such as addiction, anxiety, and sleep. He has worked as an advisor to the Ministry of Defense, the Department of Health, and the Home Office. And in 2007, he published the politically controversial study on the harms of drug use in The Lancet that eventually led to his dismissal from his government advisory position, which no doubt will touch on the motivations and politics at play then. 
Professor Nutt has published several other marquee studies on the effects of drugs that have been closely leveraged the world over. And most recently, in 2020, he released the most comprehensive and accessible book on the reality of alcohol drinking and health and longevity called Drink the New Science of Alcohol and Your Health. Welcome on the show, Professor. Well, it's uh, great to be here, but you can call me Dave, all right? I'm going to do that from now on. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I do hope you're well. Um, the sun is shining in the UK today, and um, I know well, we've got crazy times, but how are you generally? Well, I am an extraordinarily fortunate person because I live out of town. I'm, I'm sorry, I've got gardens on three sides of my semi-detached house. There's always sun. I've got fields around me to walk my dogs. I'm actually, it's kind of almost like being on holiday for the last three months. So I've, uh, I've, it's been, I'm very fortunate compared with most people. Yeah. Well, that's, that's lovely to hear that not only that you, you have that, um, that fortune, but you are keeping level headed and enjoying the space and time that we've been gifted, albeit there is some craziness around us. Well, I have never spent so much time in my home. In fact, <laughs> <laughs> I'm appreciating it more and more, right? You know, because normally I travel. Almost every week I'm traveling somewhere, and uh, as well as traveling to work because I'm, I'm now living near near Bath, but I work in London, so I'm always traveling to London. So it's been, ex- you know, it's, it's been quite um, quite a change in lifestyle. A lot, a lot more time to think, and I've been writing a lot and and doing a lot of interviews <laughs> like this. Yeah, that's great. And um, yeah, maybe, maybe we end up coming out of this reflecting on some of our uh, social norms and behaviors as it relates to, you know, the workplace and how hard we work and the priorities we put to home and life and family. So yeah, I, I love that sentiment, David. Now, um, today, of course, given your specialism, I would love us to really dig into the science of drinking. I know there's lots of questions from everyone as as it relates to uh, the effects of alcohol on health and longevity. And I know we're going to get through that. And we have a bunch of questions from our audience too. So let's see if we can touch on those. But before we do, uh, David, are you able to broadly introduce yourself to the audience, maybe help add a little more color to your academic and scientific career from what I've just added above? Yeah, I'm a psychiatrist, as I say, like to say with a name like Nut, that's probably the best um, branch of medicine for me. But I've always Ever since I was a child, I've always wanted to work out how the brain worked and how it went wrong. And uh, it became clear to me very early on at university, which I mentioned in my book, in the intro to the book, the impact of alcohol on the brains of myself, to some extent, getting drunk and falling you know, over and getting ill, but also the psychological changes that alcohol produced in my friends, the other medical students, altering their personality dramatically. And from that point on, I became fascinated by the use of drugs to understand probe brain function. And as I got educated at Cambridge and then at Guy's, I re- it became clear I'm of the generation where we were brought up with a discovery that the brain wasn't actually an electrical organ. It was actually a chemical organ. Mm-hmm. And the, the concept of chemical neurotransmission was being developed by some of the people who taught me at Cambridge. And that made me realize that if the brain largely communicates through chemicals, and the brain actually has about 80 different neurotransmitter chemicals, then and drugs work on those, drugs are going to be the key to understanding and unlocking brain function. So then I became a, a pharmacolo- neuropsychopharmacologist as well as a psychiatrist. I use drugs to treat disorders, but I also 
And I guess my biggest claim to fame is I probably use more different drugs, or given more different kinds of drugs to human beings than anyone alive, probably. There's almost no class of drug that exists either in medicine or in uh, for recreational use that I haven't given. And they've, it's proved enormously powerful way of understanding the brain and how it works and how it can go wrong. But all through that, my career as, as any doctor, I've seen the impact of alcohol. Alcohol is the most commonly used drug apart from perhaps coffee. And it's one of the more powerful ones. So wherever you go in medicine, there's a, alcohol is lurking, you know, rearing, rearing its dangerous head. And that's why I decided to write this book about putting together the science of alcohol, which has progressed enormously in the last uh, 40 years of, um, I've been a doctor. And, uh, and, and uh, yet, has the alcohol itself has managed to avoid becoming controlled in the way of most other drugs, even though compared with many, it's more harmful. So it's, it's, alcohol is both a drug, it's a social lubricant, but it's also a, an enormously powerful kind of political weapon and uh, a very powerful lobby group. It's perhaps the most interesting drug of all, because as I said, it's the drug that most people have experience of. And, and for many people, that experience is positive, but for quite a significant proportion, it's not so positive. Yeah, I would say that the general sentiment, I think uh, people are not naive to the fact that there are ill effects from drinking. Um, you know, I know it's sensationalized and it is, um, um, it is, is, it is allowed to be at the centerpiece of our kind of like social bravado, as you say, it's a social lubricant. Um, you watch the, the, the likes of Peaky Blinders and you, you see them drinking obscene amounts and getting up to all sorts of mischief. And we know it's a, a weird and a, a dark life they once led, but there's there's something that, you know, the alcohol part of of that show, you go, there's there's an allure to it. Um, and I think I think people mostly know that lots of alcohol is bad. But I also think that the, the biggest sentiment around alcohol is that it just makes you inebriated, you make bad decisions, you become more res- irresponsible, and you can cause danger to yourself or others, whether it be in a car or through fights. But I think there's less dialogue around the longevity effects of even moderate alcohol. And I think maybe that could be our, our centerpiece of this discussion. So why don't we start on this question, a bit of a bit of a big one. Does alcohol have a role in the life of someone who is trying to optimize their life, live the fullest life they possibly can, live the longest life they can? Can you have alcohol in that life in a safe way? Well, that's a really good question. And I think a lot hinges on the word optimize. So if if by optimize you mean, can I live for as long as possible? then it's probably best not to drink at all. But if by optimize you mean, can I have the most fulfilling and interesting and enjoyable life, then I think for many people, including myself, uh, alcohol is an important aspect of life. Mm. That's why I wrote the book. I, I, I want people to make sensible decisions about what they drink based on knowledge rather than either advertising or ignorance. And so, so I, I hear you. There's there, there's a social and hedonistic value that we all get. Those that drink and those that can drink in moderation receive the benefits of. Is there is there um, 
how to put it. Is are, are there concerns though around even social or small amounts of alcohol that people should be made aware of? Yeah, well, so let's the book goes into this in quite a lot of detail because it's it it is quite complicated in the sense that drinking small amounts of alcohol has very little impact. So the current government guidelines, 14 units a week, if uh, if you drank that, if you drank 14 units a week for 40 years, it would take about a year off your life. Now, for most people, including myself, uh, that's that's an acceptable uh, equation. Yeah. 39 years of re- enjoying the pleasure of occasional drinks and relaxation and sociability. I'll trade a year when I get to 80 or 70 for the pleasures going up to that point. So that's, from my perspective, that's a, a sensible um, exchange. However, some people you know, might not view that. Some people might think that extra year between sort of 69 and 70 is really worth hanging in where they want, they want to um, maximize their life. The problem is, and this is why alcohol is such a challenging topic, for some people who set out to, to stick within the limits, they will fail. And they will fail for a number of reasons. And, and it's, this is where it does get quite complicated because people people drink excessively f- for different reasons. And that's why the e- there isn't a one-size-fix-all answer to any of those questions. The, probably the majority of people who drink more than they should are actually self-medicating. They are dealing with stress, depression, boredom, uh, anxiety disorders. They're dealing with those disorders using alcohol because they don't have a recourse to any other kind of better therapy. And then there's a significant number of people who drink out of ignorance. They drink because their mates drink. They drink because everyone drinks. They drink because they enjoy it. Uh, and then they get tolerant and they have to drink more. And so they escalate their dosing uh, to, to dangerous levels just because they just drink so much it's to start with. They they can then carry on drinking more and more. And then there's a third group, uh, and they're the group of people for whom alcohol produces uh, a sort of sense of rightness in their brain. And I describe in my career, I've been treating people with alcohol problems all my life, and you come across it quite frequently, people who, they're only right when they've had a drink. And you, I bet we, you probably know people like this. I know people you, amongst friends and family. They're, the real person is the person who's been who's a bit drunk because they become themselves. They become they flourish. They become chatty and sociable, and often they're very quiet and introverted. And then they, they it's like they blossom when they've had a drink. And those people really struggle because the only time they can really feel right is when they've been drinking. So, so there are three separate reasons why people drink, and how t- getting each different group to kind of control their drinking requires different strategies. Okay, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I had a question coming in from uh, a long-time drinker, uh, someone who has openly uh, accepted and communicated that he has a bit of a drinking problem, uh, and has tried to address it many, many times, but you know. I think he falls into your camp, uh, the, the, that last camp, which is he just feels right. He feels himself with a few. Um, and he asked the question about CBT and counselling to understand the need 
to self-medicate and that kind of completeness that only really comes with several drinks in you. How do you, how do you think about um, cognitive behavioral therapy and counseling as a means to kind of put someone on a program of abstaining or at least reducing their alcohol consumption? Yeah, well, I think CBT can have some you know, huge value. Uh, I mean, it's, you have to decide, though, what you're trying to achieve. Are you trying to achieve abstinence or are you trying to achieve moderation? And once you've decided that, you, the strategies are somewhat different. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very much in favor of, of people thinking deeply about their motives for drinking and evaluating the consequences of their drinking and then closing the circle and, and changing their behavior so that they drink less or drink nothing at all, depending on what they've decided. Is it, is it quite a dark process for, for some people? Is it a painful process? Well, for people who are very dependent and, and, and for people who've actually caused havoc to themselves and largely to other people, it can be very painful. I mean, the, the whole the Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step program is about taking people through the worst depths of their drinking-related behaviors and, and activities and, and digging up through all the guilt and the errors they've made. And it can be very challenging. But uh, it can also be, of course, very empowering once you've done it or once you've apologized to the people that you uh, have let down when you were um, abusing them verbally or physically when you were a drunk. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I don't, in many ways, it's the, it's, it, you can sort of, that, that process can help people clear out a lot of the emotional baggage which is hanging over there and, and continuing, to, continuing to eat away at them and encourage them to drink again. So... So I, 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 that could protract, you know, long, hard work, but, but cathartic exercise can be quite useful for people who are very, very dependent. And, 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 and once you get to that stage, abstinence is likely to be the, the best way forward, at least for five or ten years. For people who, who just get into difficulties doing stupid things, you know, like I certainly did when I was young, reflecting on why you, what, what the triggers for losing control were, uh, you can use that kind of cognitive, rational approach uh, in, a, in a way to, to, to regulate your drinking. So, in the, my book is full of full of you know good of advice. Like for instance, you know, if you're drinking wine, never open a second bottle of wine. If you just say, "I will never open a second bottle of wine in a day," it's pretty difficult to drink yourself to a point of where you're in a real difficulty. Never rehydrate with alcohol. You know, a lot of people do that. They, you know, they go for a run or they go, you know, they do some kind of sport and then they rehydrate with alcohol. Well, that's dumb. You know, you rehydrate with water and then you use the alcohol for pleasure. And actually, that is, I think, one of the key messages that I would put out. Alcohol is a drug. It's a drug that can produce a powerful experience of pleasure and togetherness and sociability. Use it as if it were a drug, not as if it were just a drink or a, or a food. Mm. I can imagine, David, that accepting external help or doing the self-work to understand if there is a dependency that you don't like about alcohol and the reasons for it uh, must be must be hard even just to acknowledge 
and then go the step of seeking out counsel or getting a book or doing the self-work. Do, do you, I mean, uh, there must be lots of people that don't recognize they have a problem, but at some level they do, like subconsciously they, they acknowledge that perhaps they drink a little too much and they'd like to lower it, but it's not enough to suggest they need a therapist. Well, this is absolutely, and you know, at all levels, you see, you see people at all levels. So, you know, there are. When I was doing the book signing uh, at the festival in London earlier this year, a guy, a guy came up to me and said, oh, "You know, you know, I, um, I, I enjoy drinking." I said, "Well, so how much you drinking?" So I drink it. I drink two bottles of wine at lunchtime. <laughs> what? Well, that's really rather too much he said let me daft that's fine and you know sign the book and he walks on so so there you have someone who is not obviously at least in his own mind affected by drinking way way over what is a safe limit and you 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 know in the in the book you can estimate you know two bottles of wine a day let alone at lunchtime that's going to take 10 years off his life and and one of the i think one of those one of the reasons i wrote the book one of the most powerful arguments for for communicating risks of alcohol is for people who don't know the risks to face up to them. If you say to someone like him, don't drink at all, we'll say, well, that's daft. I enjoy, you know, I enjoy drinking. Why shouldn't, you know, what? But if you say to him, well, that's fine, you know, two bottles a day, well, that is taking, that will take 10 years off your life. That means you possibly won't see your grandchildren grow up. They might think, oh, well, hang on a second. Then we, let's start, do I really need two bottles at lunchtime? Maybe only one would do, you know, and that, and that reduction would, have a profound effect on his uh, longevity. So there's that aspect to it. There's also the, the biggest problem of all are the people who, you know, who are act, kind of actively denying. And, you know, and, these, and this is where it becomes really challenging, isn't it? And so this is, again, selling, when I'm set, when I make festivals and I'm signing copies of the book, I'm seeing a lot of middle-aged women who come up to me and they say, we do sign this book. I say to whom? To my husband. Oh, is he here? No, he's not here. No, he won't come out. He's at home getting drunk. <laughs> and uh, and so I say to him, okay, I say to her, you know, well, look, okay, take the book back and you know, maybe point out there wanted to, you know, the, there's a chapter in there about how to work out if you're harming yourself uh, and just maybe gently um, confront him or at least sort of share with him the fact that you're worried about his drinking. Not because you're angry, not because you actually... Um, but you know that you want to because getting angry with someone who's drunk especially when they're drunk is is really dangerous but but that you want to share your concerns you want to you just want him to know that you you are reflecting on his health not on his behavior and then get them to read that chapter and get them to do the scorings to determine whether they're uh having problems with it because i believe it you know i believe everyone's right if you phrase it another way if you go to the, you know, if you go and get a, even if you go over, get an over the, over the counter prescription, or, you know, some aspirin or paracetamol, you open the box, there's an information leaflet inside, you know, which, which tells you all about what you're taking. Mm-hmm. But we don't have any of that with alcohol. We don't even have a warning on the bottle like we have with tobacco. Yeah, what's, what's the deal with that, right? So that, that's, that's bang on. I, I want to double click into that. If you get, as you say, any medication, it comes with a list of possible side effects. And we know we know that the most tested, rigor, rigorously tested, safety tested medicines that we use today are now being exposed as perhaps uh, either at an acute level or at least at a chronic level 
cause some health issues, whether it be long-term use of antibiotics, long-term use of ibuprofen, and the list goes on, and and and, of medication that supports or or suppresses diabetes or or blood pressure, etc. There's all sorts of issues, but these are rigorously tested and openly discussed as as to the possible side effects. Why is it that you can get a pint or you can get, you know, a can of lager or a wine, and there is no side effect discussion, or at least a link to something where you can learn more about the possible side effects. Why is that completely absent in alcohol marketing and distribution? And yet, on a packet of cigarettes, it's all there. Yeah. And the answer is very straightforward. This is a British decision. Other countries that drink as much as us, like France, make it explicit that there are harms of alcohol on wine bottles, on beer cans, etc. But the drinks industry in Britain has controlled the government so effectively that the government has uh, basically not brought into uh, legislation the, the, the enforcing what actually is agreed. They agreed, but they haven't enforced this, this, this kind of warning on bottles because the drinks industry is such a powerful lobby in this country. Talk to me a little bit more about that. What's what's that relationship? And and we are going to get back to the um, the science and the chemistry and and the risks to make make that clear. But let's just keep going here. What what is that relationship, and why is it so hard to break free from and do say what the cigarette industry are now being forced to do by the government? Well, historically, of course, uh, alcohol has been with us for thousands of years. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it it's been one of the reasons alcohol is so sort of soaked into our culture is that until like the 1850s you most water was poisonous you couldn't drink water yeah so for you know from the from the beginnings of time since people started to make beer people drank beer it was called small beer even the kids brought up on two to three percent beer because the brewing of beer kills the kills a lot of the nasty bugs that give you diarrhea etc so so people drank beer until about the 1860s when you got began to get clean water uh, and then they drank wine uh, or spirits that's to celebrate events and or, or to get drunk and also there's wine has been part of the church sacrament for you know, 2000 years so so there's a very strong link in culturally between alcohol and religion and alcohol and health uh, and then about the 1850s 1860s uh, people began to get worried about the influence of drinking and the, the prohibitionist um, groups began to develop, which culminated actually in America in the uh, prohibition of alcohol, 1922, uh, which was a terrible disaster because it led to the mafia and the rise of organized crime and eventually was repealed in 33. But the drinks industry learned from that. They thought, wow, this is, this was, this is a serious threat to us. So, so they then set in place uh, two things. One was a sort of systematic lobbying for alcohol as a good thing. And that lobbying is in part, we can talk about it later, about the possible health benefits of alcohol, but also about the economic benefits of the alcohol industry. And they also set out to destroy the competition. The competition at the time in the 30s was cannabis. uh, And subsequently, they've tried to eliminate or get any other recreational drug other than alcohol made illegal. And they've succeeded in many countries in the world. That's the first thing to say. The second thing is that when the tobacco industry began to be exposed as producing rather to- a toxic substance, 
the tobacco industry made a fundamental mistake. It lied. Mm. It lied about two things. It sort of lied, or it tried to confuse people about the particular lung cancer risk. But it lied about its own research. It said it, it said tobacco wasn't addictive. When they had research, it showed it was addictive. And that research was exposed during the lawsuits in the States. And the alcohol industry were watching this and thinking, this is worrying. Once if tobacco goes down, we're going to be next. And they decided to do something very clever. They decided never to tell a lie, but simply to uh, alter the truth in a way that was um, sort of acceptable. So they would never deny the fact that alcohol causes liver cirrhosis, but they would say, well, if you drink responsibly, it won't. And uh, because of their phenomenal uh, lobbying power, about half of all MPs get some kickbacks from the drinks industry. They managed to stop a debate being held in the in Parliament about about labelling of um, of alcohol, because they they actually so they, it's a it's a truly maybe most of your listeners won't know this story, but in about uh, two thousand and five, a, a committee was set up. Uh, by the Blair government to deal with the problems of alcohol. And I was asked to sit on it along with a number of other scientists. And when we heard, when we saw the structure of the committee, we discovered that the committee was half scientists and doctors and half the drinks industry. And we said, well, uh, you can't do this because the drinks industry has actually got what's called a conflict of interest. You know, they're... They're the people that are making profits out of alcohol. You can't expect them to be objective and balanced in decision-making. And the government said, tough. And we said, well, we're not going to sit around a table where the drinks industry has essentially as much authority as we have in terms of decision-making. So all the academics resigned. And, and, and till, from that point on, all the advice to governments about alcohol has been given by the drinks industry. Wow. It is absurd, isn't it? Um, And it reflects the fact that no politicians, even the Labour government, wouldn't stand up to the drinks industry. So that's how how it stands today. We have scientists uh, and advisors, but they are on the payroll of the drinks industry for the most part when it comes to government advice and counsel. No, the scientists don't go to the meetings because we refuse to. We are... it it would be like having the tobacco industry making decisions with you know sitting around a table making decisions about about smoking you know we've agreed that the industry cannot be objective so the tobacco industry you know has, has no say whatsoever in health messages relating to tobacco but the alcohol industry is basically what tells the government what to say about alcohol i mean it, it is it is so bonkers. You, you, I can hear the incredulity in your in your silence, but that is the way it is in this country. And we're actually one of the things we're, we're trying to do at present is take them to court, because at least I think it was at least three years ago it was agreed they would put on bottles warnings about particularly about fetal alcohol, and the industry has refused. It hasn't done it. Says it's too difficult, and we say, "Well, they can do it in France. It's the same size bottles." Mm-hmm. The industry is dra- the industry is dragging its feet. It's 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 doing everything it can not to change, even though 
changing would have huge health benefits for people and actually not affect their profits at all, as the French have shown. But they don't want to concede at all because if they concede, then people might start saying, oh, maybe they've been, we've been misled by them. I think it's important to know, and I think you put this on the, in the book, David, that there is, there is a reasonable GDP contribution to alcohol in our country, right? Absolutely. You know, alcohol's got, you know, I think it contributes between 20 and 30 billion a year. That's right, in terms of the hospitality industry and the brewing industry. And the, and the taxes. And the taxes. But it does cost more than that. Overall, the costs are greater. And that's the problem. Let's talk about that. Let's maybe talk about that cost a little bit. So you said, is it? And I'm, I'm sorry, because I, I don't drink anymore. I used to drink quite a bit, but in a binging fashion, the very worst way. Uh, but it's been quite a while since I drink. I'll probably have a glass of wine every time I go out for a meal, which is not that frequent. But um, how many units a week did you say? Is it 14 units a week for a guy? Is that right? Well, it's for both now. The decision was made a couple of years ago, about three years ago, to bring down the recommended units for men to the same level as women. It used to be 21 for men, now it's 14. Reason for that okay. is, it's not entirely clear, it's just that men are more vulnerable to the effects of alcohol than women, um, particularly because they get into fights and things. So uh, so the decision was made, make it the same, 14 units. And you know, if that, if that's, if you drink less, if you don't drink more than that, you know, it really, there are, the impact on your life is pretty, life expectancy is pretty minimal. So you're okay with that limit being a, uh, a limit that both uh, keeps people in check um, in terms of behaviour, uh, but also is the, the risk. The, the risk associated to fourteen units a week is tolerable and insignificant. Is, is that what you're saying? It's, it's scientifically supported from your point of view. A year after life expectancy. Right. Okay. So you, you're scientifically uh, comfortable and in support of fourteen units a week being a a safe. Um, recommendation it's not saying get 14 units a week it's stay within 14 units a week and you feel that's a good message yeah i think it's a very important point you just made because the industry of course wants you to think that that's a target <laughs> not <laughs> and of course there are people and i've <laughs> some quite well-known people i won't name names because it will embarrass them who thought it was per day <laughs> okay <laughs> What is 14 <laughs> units a week? What, what, what are we talking about as, a, you know, in pints of beer or glasses of wine? Well, it's a kind of a big, yeah, it's a pint, a pint, pint and a half a day. Okay. It's a glass of wine a day, really. a moderate, medium glass of wine a day. Okay, okay. So for 14 units a week, um, it's scientifically robust in terms of risk. Now, let's talk about risk a little bit. So in reading your book, it, it, it became clear to me that um, it could if you were uh, an orthorexic or someone who just gets quite obsessive about risk, uh, especially in today's current pandemic and the issues with COVID, et cetera, I think fear is now at an all-time high, you know, mm -hmm. health-related fear. And we can see that risk is being blown completely out of proportion and the average though doesn't understand how to do risk assessment, relative yeah. and absolute risk assessment based on statistics, numbers, real data. But yeah. when I read your book, it, 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 it is clear that there is unequivocally risk that comes with drinking. So I'd like to double click into what those risks are at a broad strokes level. But what I get from the book is that this is about risk management. If you understand yeah. the risks and you understand the benefits, you can, take, you can make a sensible decision. 
Um, and it's about risk tolerance. And are you someone who wants to live as long as possible? If so, probably pull away from alcohol completely. If you're someone who wants to live a good le- uh, length of life, but also wants to get the, the joys out of drinking, there is a balance. But let's talk about risk management and then maybe double click into what some of those broad stroke risks are for alcohol. Yes. So the uh, thing about alcohol is it affects pretty much every single organ in the body from the skin to the brain and the gut. So uh, and it, the, the impact is slightly different depending on how you drink. So if you drink steadily day in, day out, you know, the sort of Mediterranean style, the, the biggest risks are things like cirrhosis. But if you binge, then you seem to get a bigger risk of, of accidents, but also of brain damage. But overall, alcohol affects pretty much every system in the body, and it does it does it slightly different rates. So, for some systems, it's a sort of linear: the, you double the amount you consume, you double the risk. For others, say like like liver cirrhosis, then if you double the amount you drink, you quadruple the risk. So the different organ systems have a, a different relationship to alcohol consumption. Okay, okay. And can we can we go a little bit deeper there? So when when we talk about when we talk about organ risks or, or, or general health risks, um, what what is it all stemming from? Like if you had to look at the mechanism or the mechanisms that generally we're competing with or health is competing with when we drink what what are they well that's a really good question and we don't know here's a paradox for you 85 percent of all the patients that are seen by liver doctors are being seen because they've got alcohol induced liver disease five percent of all the research spend on liver disease is spent on alcohol. Mm. So basically, we don't research alcohol. We don't know. I mean, here's an amazing, four years ago, we did, I, I find it amazing to, to, get, to say this, we did the first ever imaging study of what drinking alcohol, or what, what alcohol in your blood does to your brain. No one had actually ever given people alcohol and put them in a scanner to find out what it did to the brain. <laughs> wow. Why? Was who? Because no one, the industry isn't going to fund that research. Yeah. Uh, governments aren't interested because basically governments are in the hop to the industry. I mean, we would, I mean, it, it's kind of absurd how huge the, I mean, alcohol's, as I say in the book, you know, we, you know from our research, it's the leading, it's the most harmful drug in the UK. And yet it's virtually unresearched. I don't think the Medical Research Council is actually spending any money on looking at the mechanisms of alcohol harm now. Um, so what do we know then from given that there's so little research? Well, we know, we know three things, really. The first thing we know is that alcohol has to be broken down. To get rid of it, it's mostly broken down to something called acetaldehyde. Acetaldehyde is a very toxic substance. Acetaldehyde is just one carbon atom different from formaldehyde. And you all know what formaldehyde is because if you've seen the Damien Hirsch exhibitions of the cow sliced in half or the shark sliced in half, they're in, they're pickled in formaldehyde. 
So acetaldehyde is a pickling agent and it pickles your liver and it pickles your heart and it pickles your blood vessels. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that alcohol itself is toxic. Why do you rub alcohol on the skin to clean it? Because it kills bugs. What's a bug? Well, a bug is a cell. What's your body made of? Lots of cells. So if you drink a lot of alcohol, it kills the cells in your body. It kills, and that's why people get ulcers and, uh, and, and um, cancer of the mouth and the stomach. And the third thing that alcohol does is it causes inflammation. And that's one of the major factors in hangover. We're not entirely sure how it causes inflammation. It probably through several mechanisms. But um, inflammation is a bad thing because inflammation gradually damages the tissues of the brain and the, and, and the blood vessels and the skin and the heart. So there are three different ways in which uh, alcohol harms. And, some, and they may be additive or they may even be multiplicative. Okay. And is there, at this kind of 14 units a week or one and a half pints mm. a day, um, is it that there are these things that you've just described are not relevant? Or is that that they are still happening? There is some cell death. There is some inflammation. Uh, there is some pickling of, of, uh, in your description, but it is yeah, uh, it's tolerable. Well, the, the point, is, yeah, that, that's the the point is at at the fourteen units a week level. It's a, the amount. It's a, what well, it's you, 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 as I said. It takes a year off your life. So you know, for most people, that's tolerable. But if you double the amount. It takes four years off your life. And if you double the amount again, it takes uh, 16 years off your life. So it's nonlinear. And that's why you should always be trying to cut down how much you drink. I'm not saying people should not drink because because most people can't not drink because it, it's just too difficult to explain. They don't want not to drink. Mm-hmm. But you should only drink when you're getting something from the drinking. And uh, so you should only drink my own view is you should only drink socially because alcohol is truly the great social drug. And for most of us, our greatest social interactions have come when we've been enjoying ourselves with alcohol, either with, you know, friends or family. Uh, Yeah. It's, but drinking alone is a dangerous thing to do. And and I certainly would dissuade people from ever doing that. And when you say alone, is that, is that just generally alone or is that at home with say your partner? No, alone, alone. No, drink with your partner's fine because you know that's you know that's a it's good still way. Social, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you, I mean, drinking by yourself, solitary drinking. That is that is a very. If you discover you're doing that, that's a really, really rocky road downhill. Mm. What about what about these the, this fourteen units a week again? Again, sorry for double clicking. Now, I just want to make sure that we we understand all the motivations behind that number. Um, some would 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 argue or, or assume, should I say, that that number is to protect ourselves from our bad decisions uh, as it relates to getting in the car and causing accidents, and therefore keeping keeping below that level, your consciousness is intact and your decision making is not impaired. Is that a true statement? And is that perhaps the the main reason for that number? No, no, no. But it's a very good point you make, actually, and it's. Very in, an interesting point. The, the, no, so that number is based on life years lost. Okay, but the point you make about driving is isn't actually quite an important one, because your if you were to spread out your fourteen units a week to two units a day, 
then you're quite right. The chances of you being much impaired when you are driving are quite low. Or not 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 negligible, but but or not non-existent, but are low. Particularly if you're an experienced driver. So two units at a sitting will get get you up towards the drink driving limit, but but it won't massively increase your your risk of an accident. If you're an 18 year old, it will, but a more experienced drivers. So so yeah. So if you do space out your drinking two units a day over, over seven days to keep to under the 14 a week, then you will re- and you still drive will reduce your risk of accidents and for instance if you were to drink four units in a session and then drive okay so it's the, the number's not really driven by by the the statistics of car accidents um what no. what, what is the drink drive limit 80 80 milligrams per centimeter in england and wales and northern ireland but it's 50 in scotland now what does that relate to roughly in terms of kind of unit uh, units and or kind of glasses of well, it's really, yeah, but the point is... It's difficult because everyone's different, right? Well, no, it, because it depends on how fast you drink and how far, you know, soon after drinking you drive. So, okay, I'm very, I don't like trying to give people that, an answer to that question. But let's suppose, you know, if you, know, if you drink a pint of 5% beer, uh instant you know if you drink it down glug 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 five minutes then your levels will peak at about 30 minutes and at that point you're probably over the threshold but but an hour hour and a half after that you're probably under the threshold but that isn't that isn't really what we should be talking about to be honest it, it would be it's generally better it, if you can avoid drinking and driving at all you should even because even the scottish level of 50 milligrams per cent you are still impaired. It's not as if you're completely normal. Mm. You are still impaired. You're just not, you're not massively impaired. At 80, you're considerably impaired. And obviously, be above that, you you know, you get to a point where you, you're almost bound to have an accident. Okay. Okay. I think that's fair. It's um, I hear that often as well, which is if, uh, if, if you're planning to drink, plan to not drive. I think it's just the safest, the safest bet. Way the safest way, the safest. Absolutely. Yeah. So, take me into have a nominated driver. Or just organise a taxi or an Uber. Yeah, yeah. Um, what what about so so we've talked about impairment a little bit. So we we kind of explored some of the mechanisms behind which many of the uh, drink associated issues that we we become aware of uh, are are kind of uh, accumulated. Uh, we've spoken a bit about impairment, or at least as it relates to driving. Can we? I know you're psychologist by trade as well, so maybe we can uh, we can spend a little bit of time now understanding what is happening within the brain uh, that is causing us to both feel good, um, become more socially confident, um, perhaps start making decisions we wouldn't have otherwise made, perhaps get aggressive, perhaps become a lover. (laughs) Um, There's so many different ways it goes depending on how much you drink and your personality. But what, what are the kind of moving parts at a chemical level that are really causing these changes to be made in our brain? So yeah, alcohol is a bit of a chameleon drug. It, it affects different people in different ways. Some people get aggressive. Other people, like me, get silly and relaxed and you know, laughing a lot. Uh, so the substrate, the individual, is a quite an important factor here. And it's true for most drugs, but, but alcohol perhaps more than most. Um, 
So what's going on? Well, the first, when you drink, obviously the alcohol goes into your stomach and it comes into your bloodstream and it goes into your brain. And <clears throat> you begin to actually get an effect from alcohol, even from the, as it goes down your throat. I mean, those are people who drink spirits know that that, you know, it's that, that first sip will cause a tingling in the mouth and the throat. And they'll start to anticipate the pleasure of the alcohol subsequently. People who drink wine will often savor the flavor and the smell and say, wow, this is super. And, and all those things, all those, all those positive experiences are what we call conditioned. They're all caused by the fact that eventually alcohol gets in your brain and makes you feel good. So you associate the smell or the flavor of the wine with the pleasure. And people say, no, 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 I really love the taste of my you know, 19, you know, 1994 Chateau Latour, best wine in the world ever. You know, it's fantastic. And I say, we, truth is, if you were to give that to a, a baby, they'd spit it out. Of course. Yeah. It's horrible. It, the only reason you like it is because, A, it's expensive, and B, you've trained yourself to like it. So alcohol itself is actually generally disliked. And in fact, you know, reflect on the fact that no one, unless you're a severe alcoholic, drinks neat alcohol. All the alcohol we drink is flavoured with something or other. Because alcohol is very unpleasant. It burns your mouth. So we drink flavoured alcohol and we get to like the taste because alcohol gets in our brain and makes us feel good. And it makes us feel good in a number of ways. It makes us relax and uh, it makes us sociable. And it also, at some level, makes us a little bit high. Uh, the relaxation is due to the fact that alcohol works on a system, the calming system in the brain called the GABA system. And GABA is a neurotransmitter, a chemical neurotransmitter that calms the brain down. And anxious people have too little GABA and alcohol sort of replaces what's missing. And that's why they like alcohol, because it calms them down. But uh, as you <clears throat> drink a bit more, then you start to, when you start to get it, some people get a bit high with alcohol. They start to get a bit activated and chatty, don't they? And that's probably due to the release of dopamine. And dopamine is a get-up-and-go transmitter. It makes you active and driven and, and, uh, and motivated. And you talk faster and you get more energized. You get on the dance floor, start bouncing around a bit. Um, and it can also contribute to aggression because uh, the activity of dopamine can lead to aggression. But then also, for some people, alcohol seems to release serotonin. And actually, it, at low doses, the serotonin, when it's released, is a bit like ecstasy. It, uh, it makes you feel more sociable. It, it produces bonding with other people. But at high doses, the serotonin release then leads to you to vomiting through a different serotonin system. And one of the things I speculate in the book, and I never thought about it until I wrote the book, really, was that maybe the reason alcohol has survived as a, as a drug for so many thousands of years is because it does have that safety valve. If you drink an awful lot, you vomit and die uh, before you die. Whereas if you take other drugs that are a bit like alcohol, like GHB, sedative drugs or uh, opiates, they sedate you, but they don't cause you to vomit. So you basically stop breathing and die. So alcohol does have a sort of intrinsic safety valve at high levels through serotonin. But also we think that uh, uh, alcohol releases endorphins. Endorphins are the natural brain's natural painkillers that also make you feel good and a, a little bit high. And, uh, and that's why alcohol was used you know, until, the, you know, until this last century, really, as pain control. A lot of people use it to deaden the pain of broken bones or sports injuries or rotting teeth. And uh, we know the mechanisms of that are partly through endorphins and partly through gather. And uh, 
but that's that release of endorphins is uh, can also be why you get to like drinking. So it's complicated. At least four different transmitters are involved, and, and maybe probably more. And then if you take the dose up more and more, then you start to do something quite different. Instead of releasing transmitters, alcohol starts blocking them. And it blocks when it blocks one that's really important for life called glutamate. Then you stop breathing and then you die. Okay. Okay. So the the beginning part of that conversation was really positive, as in <laughs> all those effects I think people quite enjoy the sound of. Um and that that would make me think, well, you know, what why what is is that a neg is it a negative thing that it perhaps is increasing serotonin or um it's releasing more dopamine or it's uh you know increasing more gaba so you can be more relaxed like are there is there any negative to those systems coming up the way they are when you have that first one or two drinks rarely but i mean obviously there are times when you know you can uh, you <laughs> You're a, you know, you're a 18 year old man and you go to a club and you see an attractive person, you want to chat them up and you have a couple of drinks and you dampen down your anxiety by turning on your gabba. And then you get a bit overconfident, you start going to chat someone up and you don't pick up the cues if they don't want to talk to you. And you make a fool of yourself. So yeah, it's a psychologically, so behaviorally, it might perhaps get you into trouble. But at a kind of brain health level, is the manipulation of your your normal rhythm of production of these transmitters is that is that in any way kind of damaging the brain not at the levels not if you're drinking you know if we're talking about up to say four units no you're not gonna you're not damaging the brain okay but at high levels brain consequences start to occur not just in the moment in terms of decision making but there are some long tail absolutely Once you start to push it beyond that, and that's getting towards a binge, then two things happen. I mean, the first thing is that you make mistakes. And a lot of the brain damage from alcohol, and alcohol is by far the most damaging drug to the brain. Of all the drugs I've studied and all the brain scans I've done and people who've taken all sorts of different drugs, the only one you can say, ah, that's an alcoholic, uh, is is alcohol. Because partly the, the brain shrinkage that alcohol produces but also the fact that uh, there's so much violence associated with alcohol. People fall over, they get kicked, they get run. You know, there's a lot of head injury from alcohol as well. But so that's one aspect. But the other aspect is the chemical changes. When you get start to get drunk, your brain tries to accommodate that. It's it um, a system called homeostasis kicks in. Your brain tries to turn off these neurotransmitters that it's turning on, uh, or turn on the ones that are being turned off, and that's what leads to a hangover the next day that you you adjust your neurotransmitters to stop you being ill with alcohol and it takes you know 10 24 hours to so to to re- recalibrate those neurotransmitters and that process of for turning them off or turning them on depending on which ones they are you turn off gaba you turn on glutamate <clears throat> you turn off gaba you turn on glutamate the next day can lead to serious problems and the most obvious one is sleep disturbance you know everyone knows after a binge they fall asleep like a log they snore like crazy and then three in the morning they're awake bright eyed because the sedative system has been turned off and the uh, motivation active system has been turned on and withdrawal so with and then withdrawal can lead to anxiety and it can lead to people wanting to drink more it can potentially even lead to to brain damage through high blood pressure etc 
Okay, yeah, and yeah, I've, I've definitely had those episodes of uh, having a complete all-out binge, uh, being completely sedated, um, waking up in the middle of the night, especially if I've had some Red Bull, uh, and just waking up in the morning thinking, oh, I'm absolutely fine, you know, I'm, I'm raring to go, I can crack and I can do my job, only to realise a few hours later, once that kind of endorphin rush starts to dissipate, I just feel the pain. The, the real pain <laughs> just can't can't be escaped and you just want fat food or something to just try and i don't know there's a very po- absolutely and the point is the psychological impairment of a hangover is as dangerous to driving as being at the limit so a lot of people think oh, oh thank god i mean you know, the alcohol I, I'll go that my body. You know, I got a hangover, but at least I can drive legally. Well, you can drive legally, but on the other hand, you know, you know, you're not necessarily safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that makes sense. What what about like deadening of cells? I mean, is is there anything going on that's um, causing the you know that actual grey matter to start to perform poorly through time, or you know, or, or, or as you say, it said reduced size. So, like, what's going on there? Is I, I've I've often heard like if you have say cocaine and stuff, there's definitely some some cell death in your brain. I mean, is that happening with alcohol too? Well, it's definitely happening with alcohol. I'm not sure it's happening with cocaine. But... Okay, all right, I've got I've got it wrong. Go on, explain it then. <laughs> well, no, it's just that people are. Yeah, the evidence that cocaine causes brain damage is pretty minimal. I mean, it's it's just one of those things that people, governments put out to try to stop people using cocaine. Um, I mean, if you were IVing huge amount, you know, if you're IVing, you know, a gram of cocaine every night, then it probably is going to cause some brain damage. But it, most people's cocaine use isn't causing brain damage. It's much more dangerous to the heart than the brain. Um, but with, um, with alcohol, the brain damage comes from several different factors. So the, I've talked about the brain injury. The second factor is that... Um, yeah, alcohol is toxic. Brain cells die, and they die, and um, also they die from the, p- the toxicity of acetaldehyde itself, but also from the uh, inflammation it's caused. And then you get brain damage from the effect of um, alcohol on the blood, uh, and the fact that alcohol is the leading cause of high blood pressure. Uh, alcohol kills more people through stroke than through cirrhosis of the liver. Mm. Is the only treatable cause of high blood pressure where we know there's a cause. Uh, Certainly the commonest treatable cause of high blood pressure. I mean, there are some rare syndromes where we know the blood pressure, what causes the blood pressure. Mostly high blood, we don't know what causes high blood pressure. Uh, Probably about 20, 25% of high blood pressure is caused by people's drinking. And high blood pressure damages blood vessels in the brain, and that leads to the brain getting little mini strokes and the brain shrinking then as well. But then there's another aspect to alcohol. When you get when you start to become alcohol dependent and you start to struggle with life so you, you can't work, you can't afford to eat, and then you get into a state of vitamin deficiency and that leads to a rather precipitate a catastrophic collapse in brain function because alcoholics aren't getting enough vitamin B1, thiamine in. And that leads to very, well, the two things. The first is they're not eating food with vitamins in. They're just often just eating chips. And the second is that their alcohol use reduces the uptake. So they end up with this terrible deficiency of, of thiamine, and that leads to permanent brain damage. But we're talking at quite high levels at, at that point in of alcohol consumption. A yeah. A, a large dependency. Yeah, but there's plenty of people at that level, and that's 
it is a it is a health problem. Brain damage from alcohol is a preventable disorder. If we, for instance, if we we could insist that every drink had thiamine in it, but we don't, because the drinks industry doesn't want us to do that. And is there is there some level of brain damage occurring with every drink? And it's and but the body has a as an ability to you know cell regrowth, cell you know new cell production, new tissue production. Is there a like an equilibrium that you can sit within where there is the net effect is no cell death, even though there is cell death with every drink. And the reason, let me just kind of back up a little bit. We've had various toxicologists on or people talking about inflammation, generally speaking, and talking about that, you know, environmental pollutants, uh, antagonistic foods, lifestyle factors cause inflammation throughout the body. Um, uh, but the, the 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 equation that you need to be mindful of from a longevity perspective is ensuring that cell death does not outgrow cell production and cell recovery and cell repair. And if you keep that balance right, then you'll be fine. And everything in life comes at risk. Living is a risk. But you can tolerate you can tolerate that risk if you keep those behaviours at a minimum and you you know you balance them with other behaviours. So when we look at alcohol, one. Is every drink causing a little bit of cell death yeah, at some tissue level, whether it be the brain or otherwise? And two, is that inherently a, a cumulative effect or can it actually be kind of netted out with you know the, 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 the productive systems that we have in our body? Yes, so that's a complicated question. So should we stick with the brain to start with? Yeah, let's do that. And sorry for giving you, giving you a, making you work no, for it. <laughs> no, but the point is, the brain has almost no capacity to regenerate, almost none. Okay. There's only two places in the brain where you can see any new cell growth. And that's, it's very questionable whether that has any real value in maintaining brain health. So the, the truth is if you damage your brain, it's extremely difficult to repair it, which is why you see when people have strokes in their 20s, they, they may never speak again. So, so, so any, any brain damage is likely never to be repaired. So is alcohol killing cells in the brain? Yes, it probably is. At the dose, at the sort of at the, the doses we're talking about, a couple of two, three, four units uh, of an evening. Probably not. It's probably not causing cell damage to the brain at, well, as a result of that, or, or, or it'll be minimal damage. But if it does cause damage, it repair, as I say, doesn't really happen in the brain. So um, when you look at the rest of the body, then the story is obviously different because most other organs can repair themselves. So if we look, let's look at the liver, for instance. So now if you look at what's a safe level of drinking to avoid getting liver damage? And the answer is probably half a pint of beer a day. If you drink half a pint of beer or you know, a small glass of wine, you're almost certainly not gonna increase your risk of liver damage. Uh, however, if you, but then if you look at cancer, if you say, well, what's the risk of causing cancer from alcohol? And if you, if you, we know that alcohol is involved in at least eight different cancers. It's the only preventable cause of breast cancer, for instance. Uh, if you don't drink, you reduce your risk of breast cancer. Uh, if you look at cancer in the, in the way 
if you take treat alcohol in cancer in the way we would treat any other sort of food additive. So for instance, if, if Professor Nutt discovers, it was to discover that alcohol was a, actually a wonderful addition to jelly to make a nice, nice tasting trifle at Christmas, and I wanted to sell alcohol as a food ingredient, I'd have to put it through toxicological testing. And if we did that, and it has been done, the maximum allowable amount per year per year is a glass of wine. Mm. And that's because of the cancer risk. So, so <laughs> in reality, there's no safe dose of alcohol to re- for cancer because everyone drinks way, way more than one glass of wine. Uh, anyone who drinks almost always drinks more than one glass of wine. That's a scary year. stat. Well, yes and no. Yes, okay. But is it? Yeah. So why don't we ban alcohol like we ban, say, pyridine in, or benzene in, in, in foods because they cause cancer at the same level? And the reason is that alcohol has benefits which we believe outweigh the risks, whereas we don't believe that benzene or pyridine has benefits, and they don't really. <clears throat> so that's the challenge. If you actually want to be immune, as immune as possible from any negative effects of alcohol, you don't drink at all. But on the other hand, if you uh, drink sensibly, you will, I would argue, get a lot more benefits from alcohol than what you'll gain in terms of benefits from a marginal improvement in health. Mm. And that, there's also kind of um, pro-health um, lifestyle decisions that you can make in your life that can manage cell mutation and cancer, right? So, um, the you know, the process of autophagy, the, you know, the process of intermittent fasting and not constantly being fed, you know, being sensitive to the foods that you're eating that could be antagonistic. I mean, you can take measures for managing basically your body going wrong and creating bad cells you you can put those i guess into into a lifestyle that also includes alcohol and perhaps that is your way of mitigating the risk of some of your other lifestyle factors whether it be alcohol or, or otherwise that may you know, may increase your risk is that is that fair absolutely and in fact you see this you see this so clearly with alcohol and social class I mean, it's just, it is unbelievable almost. So, you know, there are sort of five grades of, people are ranked in Britain according to the five, five layer, five levels of economic success or wealth. So, you know, if you're, if you're in the group A, group people in group A drink more than people in group E, the bottom, they drink more. But the impact of alcohol on their health is at half that of people in Group E. So why is that? That's because rich people also have much better diets and they have much, generally have healthier lifestyles mm. and don't have as much pollution and they have more space in there. Yeah. So that, that is perhaps one of the most compelling arguments for uh, there being other factors relating to the harms of alcohol. It's not just alcohol. If you have, if you all the other factors in your life are going well, you're much less likely to come to harm from alcohol. That's a really, really, really interesting point. I, I hadn't heard that step before, but something worth clicking into, at least understanding. Because I, I, know, I, know, I know many people that are, you know, middle class or, or, or above and have, you know, a strong relationship with alcohol. 
uh, wouldn't say they have a problem, but they have a strong relationship with it. Um, and I know they're also both educated and have the means and the motivation to look after themselves for themselves, the people around them that they love. And I wouldn't, I would, from the outside, not say that they're necessarily being impacted by their alcohol consumption. I could be wrong. Obviously, I'm not looking at the blood and looking at their organs, but you kind of look healthy, you know? Well, they, but again, it's a double-edged sword. They look healthy, but then when you look at the work of Nick Sheron in, in Southampton, in his liver unit, a third of the people coming in with alcoholic liver disease never, ever knew they were drinking too much. <laughs> they never met criteria for being alcoholic. Right. Because they were just drinking, you know, the bottle, bottle of wine each, over dinner each night for 20 years, and not the liver pickles. So, so it's nothing, nothing will protect you against the effects of alcohol if you drink too much. In fact, this is one of the paradoxes. It's, it's even more extreme than, than tobacco because there are people who can smoke 20 a day and never get cancer and never get heart disease and end up potentially being protected against things like Parkinson's disease from smoking. They're rare, but they do exist. Whereas with alcohol, it's, you know, it's very almost unknown to find someone who really is a heavy drinker who doesn't end up reducing their life expectancy. The difference is if you're class A, group A, you know, a bottle a day might take two years off your life. If you're down in social group E, it might take eight years off your life because right. you haven't got the protective factors. Right. Okay. We're getting through our questions. This has been absolutely fantastic, David. Um, I just what, Before we leave the, the brain and, and just kind of wrap up on a couple of these others I've got, um, talk to me about decision-making. So I've drunk, an, I've drunk enough throughout my almost 40 years and lots of binging. Um, I'm not someone who drinks at home. Um, really uh, didn't get a taste for alcohol until I was you know, quite, quite a bit older. But I am, um, yeah, I have pretty bad decisions around my limits when I start drinking. <laughs> and it was all in, all in the spirit of getting drunk. I would never drink socially. It was to get drunk and get very drunk very quickly. Uh, so I know exactly how that feels. And I know how my decision making, like, you know, my wife would say, if you're going to stay out, can you just let me know? Can you just like drop me a note and say, okay, this night's yeah. going on a little longer than expected. It's not going to be half an hour. It might be until, I might not get them until 2 a.m., but, you know, it's all good. Uh, and we would get into so many arguments the following day because I went off the radar. I didn't call her when I said I was going to do, like simple things. And I could have avoided all of that hard, hard, hardship, not necessarily by not going out, but just by making better decisions in the moment. Why is that happening? Why is someone who I, I regard myself as intelligent and respectful of my wife making these decisions on a repeated basis whenever I drink? Well, the easy answer is that because alcohol very much targets the decision-making part of the brain. And, of course, that's been used as one of the reasons people get drunk because they want to stop making decisions. They want to escape they want to they want to lose it so that they're no longer having to be responsible for what they do and that's part of the pleasure of being drunk in a way it's is losing responsibility but uh, why don't you learn from that and then just do simple things to remedy it subsequently and that's a much more complicated <laughs> that's a much more personal thing and it's going to be bound up with guilt probably you kind of worried if you text her then she'll say no you got to go home. you know there's probably there's going to be an argument and blah 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 right. yeah and you're having fun and 
and also, I mean, our goal does affect your you know, memory and your timekeeping. And, you know, so it's a, it's, it's a difficult question to answer. But, but your point is so right. And the, the message from what you say is, 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 is very clear. Is that if you're going to go out and you're going to go and get blind drunk, and some people want to do, and, you know, and I, in my life I've been times when I've just fancied to do that on a Friday night, get rid of the, all the stresses of the work week. Yeah. Plan the exit strategy. <laughs> let, let your wife know where you are and tell her what you, you know, you're probably going to have a heavy one and make sure that you've got a way of getting home. And uh, oh, that and just sounds too, too sensible. Wake her up, go and sleep on the sofa. <laughs> uh, uh, far too sensible for me. No, 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 no. That would never happen. <laughs> and, and quite often, and I think a lot of people fall into this trap is they don't, they don't necessarily plan for or, or anticipate and not being a bender or being out all night or rolling in at three o'clock in the morning. Um, but it, it's that, it's that the momentum, you know, both the social fun and the, I guess the impairment of decisions that, and as you say, maybe wrapped up in some guilt and some other stuff that just kind of like keep things going. And, you know, I know I've been there so many times because my relationship with alcohol has almost always been that binging moment and has, has been the most destructive to our relationship because I, I wouldn't drink socially. And that comes with its benefits because I wasn't the guy I'd go to the pub four times a week and drink a couple of pints and not be home. Yeah, but yeah. at the same time, when I do drink, it's like, okay, there's going to be a problem the following day. <laughs> do you know? So let, let me ask you this question because you, you, you hit on something which is actually very common. And there are, but there are two kinds of binge drinkers. It seems to me like you've kind of decide you're going to go out and you're going to binge. But there is another there are another group of people who don't want to binge, but they do binge. And 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 we all know those. Those are the ones who say, oh, I'll just come for a couple of pints. And then you know once that second pint's gone into their brain, they lose it and it's ten pints later they're in trouble. And that loss of control drinking is is interesting. We think from some of the research we've done, and and uh it's that's partly due to the endorphin system in the brain kicking in and and basically messing with your motivation system and in fact there is a treatment out there now for people that want not to binge there's a drug called narmaphene selincro which is available it's not much used uh, unfortunately i mean it's available and it's a pity it's not used more it helps people control their drinking and you can even take it when you started drinking to help reduce that those first couple of drinks tickling you over into those binge um, profile hmm. Yeah, I mean, if I had to kind of psychoanalyze my decision making in the moment, very difficult because it's a completely different mindset. But I, I'm, I'm never, I would never make those decisions if I was not having fun, right? If I was in a social environment I did not enjoy, yeah. I would, I would exit. You know, I would exit because yeah, it's just not. You know, it's better to come home and you know resolve the issues that would otherwise be there. But when I am having fun and I'm enjoying that social environment, I guess that in the moment decision, which almost doesn't feel conscious, is this fun is worth the consequence. Um, and I could be respectful and just let her know that, you know, it's, it's I'm having loads of fun, but I'm, I, I, go, I don't want to let her know because if I let her know, then we'll have an argument. It's, it's very odd. If you were to let her know... She'd be angry because she's not having fun. You'd feel guilty. The fun would disappear. So that's why you don't tell her. Yeah. No, that would deflate the fun balloon. 
Yeah, it's, it's it's very complex. It's very complex, and as you say, I think it's 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 alcohol induced. But you know, the psychology is still your psychology. It's still something you need to own. You can't blame the alcohol for everything, right? No, it's a very important, absolutely important point. And this is one of the really key points about the book. It's really everyone should understand their relationship with alcohol. It's it's very different for different people. Work it out yourself. Ask your partner. Ask your partner to tell you what they think your relationship with alcohol. You might well get a different insight. Mm, mm, I love that. Love that. You you talk, you've spoken about um, benefits of alcohol, or at least the, the perceived benefits of alcohol. In a nutshell, is there good evidence to suggest alcohol has positive health? benefits, not psychological, but health benefits? And are there types of alcohol, such as wine and the resveratrol within wine that, um, you know, are, are beneficial and therefore should should be one of the reasons why people should go seek out some alcohol now and again? Nope. Nope. That story has been one of the cleverest pieces of misinformation the drinks industry has been promoting for decades. Are oh, the red wine effect, the French paradox, if you drink small amounts of red wine, middle-aged men are protected against cardiovascular disease, the J-shaped curve, et cetera, et cetera. That is a theory. If it's true, it's only true for middle-aged men and not for women. And if it's true, which it probably isn't, because it's, it seems only to exist in countries where they have a very healthier diet, like France, you don't see it in countries like Britain. But if it is true, and it is red wine, it's not resveratrol because that's now been shown not to work it is the maximum amount the optimal dosing of red wine to get a beneficial effect if it exists at all is a half a glass it's about five uh, half a unit so kind of a third of a glass of wine a third of a pint if you can constrain yourself to using alcohol at that level like that's almost like a medicinal level that's fine right it won't harm you, but probably won't help you much, but it won't harm you. But beyond that, there is no other health benefit of alcohol. But the drinks industry have been really clever. The reason we don't have health labeling on bottles is because they persuaded even some top scientists, some epidemiologists back in the 19th, the end of the last century, working with the Blair government, that there was a health benefit. So they said, well, you can't say alcohol is bad for your health because there is a health benefit. But that's not true. It's been disproved now. Right. But they still haven't gone to the labeling as we should and alcohol say the alcohol in a craft beer versus the alcohol in vodka versus the alcohol in a you know alco pop or red wine that molecule in its essence is it is it the same across all of those drinks and therefore you can make that statement across everything or or is it is it different depending on you know the flavoring and and the uh, you know the what it's what it's wrapped up in you know the drink it's involved in Every drink has multiple different forms of what, but the, the, we're talking about ethanol. Ethanol's the same, ethyl alcohol's the same in all drinks. Drinks vary, some very, the more, uh, the more aged a vodka or a whiskey is, the more complex alcohols there'll be, and those will give it more flavor, but also potentially have be slightly more toxic. But essentially it's the same. If there's a difference, and there is a modicum of evidence that suggests that beer drinkers have less health harms than wine or spirit drinkers. Uh, that may be because beer is full of other things, you know, like amino acids, vitamins, and that. It's going to have quite a bit of B, I guess. Does it? Or not? 
Well, I mean, <laughs> quite a bit of beer to get. Well, but you know, there are B vitamins in beer, which there aren't in vodka. So, you know, I mean, I, I actually don't. To be honest, I don't know exactly how much. But I'm not going to. I'm not going to suggest that people drink. Go and beer. get your go get your vitamin B from alcohol. No. <laughs> <laughs> is that beer is the least worst option if you are to drink. And it's the least worst option for two reasons. One is that there is this, some suggestion that it's less toxic. The, the other bits of the beer protect you against the poisoning of alcohol. And the second reason we're drinking beer is it is harder to get really drunk on it because you've got to keep running to the loo all the time. Yes, yeah, yeah, I, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, once you pop, you can't stop, right? Constant. Um, okay, Um a, a quick one. Um, someone asked about the, are there reliable blood tests to show uh, either health or damage to the liver caused from alcohol? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What, what yeah. do they look like? What, do they, what, do, what, are they, what tests are they looking for to see what health of uh, their liver looks like? So the blood tests measure um, damage to the liver cells and the alcohol releases a substance called gamma GT. And uh, you can measure that enzyme. And that's what we measure in blood to see if people have been drinking. Okay, so they can get that, whether it be on MediChecks, or they can go in and ask their yeah, NHS can get, GP. Yeah, absolutely. And there's another. There's, a, there's a, that tests the immediate toxicity. So if you if you were to do that in the morning after your binge, it would be right up. But then there's another test uh, which is called CDT, which measures the impact of your drinking on the ability of your liver to make. A particular protein called transferrin, and you can see if that's affected by chronic drinking. Okay, and I've I've heard that liver is um is a pretty robust organ and can recover fairly quickly from uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease caused by diet. Is that is the same true for alcohol damage? So if you if you've you know binged for twenty or not binged, you've you've drunk a lot for twenty years, and then you decide you're going to clean up, maybe even abstain. Can you can you can your liver recover to full health again? Depends how far it's gone. Uh, but your liver, get, you know, people get by when ten percent of their liver they don't do very well. But but once you get to cirrhosis and it all, and it's all fibrotic, then it's it, it, you probably can't recover. You may need a liver transplant. Okay, okay. So it's not a it's not a completely recoverable organ, but it is fairly robust though, with with some damage. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's all a question of, put it this way, you know, we're, we're talking about poisoning the liver on a daily basis for most people for 20 years. It is pretty robust, yeah. It doesn't give up that hot, but it does eventually give up. Okay, okay. Well, no, thank you for um, covering that up. Now, listen, we, we're going to hit the, the last question, which I think is probably the probably the most important question. Um, again, coming through one of our uh, audience members and they asked if you were prime minister what would be the three things that you would implement to improve our situation in the uk as it relates to our relationship with alcohol and i guess improving the quality of life and the health of our people what would you do that currently isn't being done that you're unhappy with yeah great question so i would do these things I would immediately instigate minimum unit pricing for alcohol, like we've done in Scotland, 50 minute, minimum unit price of 50 pence per unit. The second thing I would do is I would tax all alcohol at the, according to the alcohol concentration. We have, in this absurd situation in Britain, 
The tax on a 10% strength cider is a third of the tax on a 10% strength wine, Mm. which encourages people to drink cider at huge amounts. And uh, the third thing I would do would be to uh, gradually increase taxation on alcohol on a regular annual basis so that the price of alcohol eventually we get to a pound per unit over the course of, say, 10 years. So increase it by 10% a year uh, over 10 years. And those three things would probably halve the harms from alcohol in this country in a decade. Wow. Okay, so it's all around, um, I guess, taxation and making alcohol less accessible from a financial perspective. Would you would you not go about some educational reform, whether it be labelling or just a, some kind of um, educational program into society, or do you feel that that's going to happen ir- irrespective? Well, if you were bringing in those reforms, you'd have to explain why. <laughs> that would be the education. The point is, we alcohol now is a third the price in real terms as it was when I was an 18-year-old. Alcohol consumption in this country has doubled as a result of that, largely as a result of reducing the price. And and that doubling of consumption has led to a fourfold increase in liver deaths from alcohol. We know that, you know, we know for alcohol, probably more than any any other, well, any other drug, that price is very price sensitive. The Scots have already shown that. 50p minimum pricing reduced admissions to intensive care from alcohol-related problems by 10%. So we know that works. So that's what education, the problem with education is that, we, you know, you, you know, you're a very educated man. I'm a very educated man. You know, I knew a lot about the harms of alcohol before I even started drinking, but that didn't stop me. Because no. knowledge, alcohol is a is a very seductive drug, and it's much better to nudge people away from extreme use than in you know, no amount of education will stop someone wanting to get drunk. That is such a good point. That is such a good point. It's um, it's seen the world over, isn't it? And I guess, I guess, my, the 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 curious mind in me would think that knowing more would allow you to make better decisions. Um, but I guess I'm testament to the fact that that hasn't, hasn't always worked. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's so. I mean, I'm not, I mean, obviously education is important, but the problem is what we have said, the, the currently all we do is sort of pseudo educate people. The drinks industry say drink responsibly. That's their, that's the level of education. Uh, I mean, I, I, absolutely, I personally think we should. I think every, every primary school child should be taught about alcohol, largely because 10% of them are going to have parents who are drinking heavily and are harming the children. And the children need to know about that and know what to do. But uh, I'm absolutely, totally in favor of education. But if we, re- but if I was prime minister, I would, education, well, you know, rolling out education, you know, it's difficult. We, we have so many different systems of education in this country. Yeah. I'm talking. I'm talking more kind of marketing campaigns, you know, like um, eat well diet, eat well guide, or you know, just things at a kind of um, recommendation level that hit the public. And whether it be, you know, the the, the you know the cigarette kind of work around, obviously labelling the cigarette packets, like that's education through marketing, isn't it? Um, do you not do you not see a place for that? I do see a place for that, but you asked me the three. Th- yeah, no, no, I know. I'm, I'm tacking, I'm tacking this one on. Apologies. <laughs> I'm just trying to understand how important you think that is in the grand scheme of things. I think it is important, but it's not enough. Economics drives people's behaviour more than education. 
I think that's uh, that's a great closing point. Thank you, David. Um, we've we've covered so so much. Uh, we did close on what the government should do or what you would do if you were in government. Um, how do you wrap a bow around this for the listener? So they've heard we out of the gate that hey, avoiding alcohol as a society is unlikely, and small amounts of it are probably bringing a risk that's tolerable for most of us for the benefits it receives. But then we then went on to, you know, shining the light into some of the, you know, the dark areas of decision making in our government, in our industry. And we did expose there being, you know, unavoidable consequences to alcohol, especially as you es- escalate your consumption. How do you wrap a bow around this for the average person who's just trying to work out where their relationship with alcohol should sit? Uh, I would say, I would say, obviously, buy my book, uh, read it, give it to your kids. But the the key message would be think about your drinking. Think about drinking. Never drink without thinking. You wouldn't take another drug without thinking. So think about drinking because it is a drug. And if you think about it and use it appropriately, you will maximize the benefits and minimize the risks. Love that. Love that. Love that. And as and as you said, your book is fantastic. It was really good. As a, as a current non-drinker, I got a ton of value out of that. And I know people that drink have read it and said it was fantastic for them too. However, it hasn't yet been enough to direct, re, you know, realistic and material change in their life. And I think that's, I think that's, you know, their psychology has got to catch up with their reality. And um, that's, that's difficult. But at least now they know what the truth is and it's then an active choice to ignore it. Uh, I think my book's the first book that really tells both sides of the story and, and allow, you know, forces people to make a decision. You either take notice or not. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. The facts, yeah. Fantastic, David. Is there anywhere online that people can find you other than obviously picking your book up? I'll put links in the show notes for that. But any other places online that you're active? Yeah, Drug Science, my charity, Drug Science, tells the truth about drugs. Definitely follow me on Twitter. Follow Drug Science, please. Fantastic. So you're mostly on Twitter in terms of uh, ranting and engaging and sharing stuff. That Twitter, yeah, absolutely. Get a few more followers, please. Lovely. Good stuff. Well, I'll make sure I link that. So this has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for being uh, generous with your time and your knowledge and your leadership. Uh, all the best for this year. Continue to enjoy the great weather of the summer. And let's hope uh, we return to some level of normality soon in this country. Thank you. That's been a lovely interview. It's been great to have so much time to go into these difficult topics in depth. And will you send me a, a link when it's out and then I'll tweet it? Absolutely. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, That's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, 
There's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.